from John 5, 1 through 9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. All right, friends, go ahead and join me in uh, John chapter 5, verse 1. Thank you, Ron, for reading that. And we got, we got a lot of ground to cover here, people, and it's, it's getting late in the morning, so we are going to move quick, but join me in John 5, verse 1. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just, again, say just uh, thank you to Andre. I don't know where he went, but um, love the ministry of Safe Refuge. Again, especially in May, uh, Foster Care Awareness Month, not too long ago, Amber spoke about Foster the Bay. Love that ministry. Safe Refuge, again, kind of works in prevention. And so just think about the impact our church could have if we get out there in these really messy situations and as Christians step into the gap and help, help kids uh, keep them from entering foster care or once they're in foster care, provide loving homes. Just so many awesome opportunities to get involved. So I'm really excited about that. Let me pray for us and then we are going to get moving. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the gift of another Sunday morning. Thank you uh, specifically for your word that you have made yourself known. You've not left us to wonder who you are or what you're like or, or what you call us to. And so, Lord, would you teach us as we read John 5, as we study it together, would you apply these truths to our hearts? Would you do your work in us now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, John 5. You know, researchers have shown that the global wellness economy is exploding. Okay, the global wellness economy that includes services like physical fitness, gyms, uh, personal beauty products, yoga, anti-aging efforts, mental wellness, mental health, nutrition, diet, uh, weight loss, spas, retreats, workplace wellness, you name it. All of that gets pulled into this category of global wellness economy. And the industry altogether is valued at over $4 trillion. It's just massive. It's growing. It's growing at twice the rate of, of just standard global economic growth. Everybody wants in on it too. We see that Chick-fil-A just rolled out their, you know, kale salad, trying to be all health food. And we, we see you, Chick-fil-A. We see you. We love you. But you're, you're not fooling anybody with your kale salad, okay? We know, we know you're not health food. Just be, embrace who you are. Fried chicken, we're all about it. We'll go for it. But you, you see the idea. Everyone wants in on the, the wellness, uh, health craze, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Pe people with money are willing to spend it on improving themselves, seeking health, uh, seeking wellness. 
It's not bad. It's a pretty natural instinct to want to be well, to want to be healthy, right? The problem is that there's a wide range of opinions out there about how to be healthy, about how to be well, about what actually works, right? What's just a a trendy health fad and what is driven by real results and real data? And do you really have to spend a lot of money to be well? Is it maybe more simple than we think? All sorts of questions like that come up. Wellness. We know, though, it's not just a matter of of physical well-being, or even just mental health and mental well-being, but as, as integrated uh, spiritual beings, there's a spiritual component, right, to wellness. And this text this morning is really going to raise the question, where does our wellness uh, come from? And if we're not well, where can we be healed? You notice again, the text began in verse 1. Sometime later, it tells us, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, the text here is going to give us a clue about kind of what's coming. There's some conflict up ahead. It says sometime later. So after the end of chapter 4, Pastor Lee was preaching on the end of chapter 4. We see Jesus heal this man's son miraculously. Sometime after that, uh, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem for a festival. We're not sure which one the text doesn't tell us. But there's a clue here. Okay, he's headed to Jerusalem. All right, for a while, Jesus has been doing ministry in Galilee or in Samaria, and now he's going back to the Jewish capital city of Jerusalem, where the temple was. And if you remember uh, what happened last time Jesus was in Jerusalem in the book of John, anyone remember? John chapter 2, Easter Sunday, Jesus is in the temple. He's turning over tables. He's got a whip. He's driving out animals. It's a little bit chaotic. There's some conflict with the religious leaders there. Okay, so it kind of gives us this hint, like, buckle up. All right, some more conflict is coming. It's going to probably get a little bit tense here. Most commentators agree that the chapter 5 that we're entering into now begins this new section of the gospel where the ministry of Jesus is going to get much more public. We're going to see him in Jerusalem more at these feasts and festivals, uh, often, again, more friction with Jewish leaders. So we're going to walk right into that, okay? So with that known, verse 2, it continues. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? So there is, again, the the question of wellness, the question of healing. We find Jesus at this pool of Bethesda, the text tells us, near the outskirts of the city. Pools like this were common in the ancient world in general. They were often seen as places of cleansing, places of healing, these really uh, large pools that were, were quite deep. And it's actually interesting, you know, an archaeological note here, for a good while people thought that the Apostle John, the author of this gospel, had no idea what he was talking about because they, they couldn't find in the ruins in the ancient city uh, a pool that matched this description. And so people were like, ah, the Bible doesn't, they don't know what they're talking about. The author of the, of the gospel of John didn't know what he was talking about. Clearly this is made up. But then uh, in the late 19th century, there was some excavation done and they unearthed uh, a healing pool like this matching John's description 
perfectly. And then like so many other archaeological discoveries tend to do, they confirm the biblical account. So just a cool note there. But the text tells us verse 3 a little bit more about this pool. Okay, A great number, it says, of disabled people would go there seeking to be healed. And now it's, it's here that we realize this is kind of a, a blending of ancient thought, a blending maybe of Jewish thought and Greek custom. Healing pools were more the stuff of, of pagan ritual or Greek uh, philosophy or culture or, or cults perhaps than it was you know, Jewish teaching, Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Jewish leaders likely were kind of suspicious of this practice or not quite in favor of it. The people, though, the, the popular opinion, as we see, very much was in favor of seeking out this kind of healing. The people went for it. And with this particular pool, there's kind of a, a legend attached to it that some people bought into that said there would, a, uh, would be an angel that would come down and, and stir up the waters of the pool. And then when the waters were stirred up, if someone would, would go down in the water, they would be healed. Okay, And so that's, again, more based on superstition and ritual and public opinion than based on Scripture or anything solid like that. But that's the idea that these people had when they approached the pool. Now, we meet a man in verse 5 who's at this pool, who has, what, been paralyzed for 38 years. And can we stop just for a moment and think about what that would mean for this man? What his life would look like 38 years disabled. Those with, with disabilities in the modern world today face all kinds of challenges, right? In life, social life, mobility, and so on, even with all our technology and infrastructure and services. So just imagine 2,000 years ago what life would look like for someone who is disabled like this, paralyzed. Think about the, the social challenges. Often in the ancient world, if someone was uh, disabled or dealing with disease, it was seen as a consequence for sin. And so people might not want to be around this person. People might uh, kind of look with a side eye at someone like this. Socially, there would be then hurdles to relationship, to community. Naturally, of course, there are mobility issues. Think, though, about the, uh, the hygiene issues that that would bring. Staying clean, think about just uh, simple things like bathing, like uh, going to the bathroom, things like that. Think about their uh, the financial reality, right? How would they be provided for? They would likely depend on the generosity of others, on giving, on donations. And so here we have a man, picture this man, in great need, 38 years long, likely feeling quite hopeless, coming to the pool probably over and over again without any healing. Jesus sees him in verse 6. Jesus saw him lying there, learned, or the text just that he knew. He knew that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Which, when we first read that, we're like, what? come on, Jesus, what do, you, what do you mean, do you want to get well? Like, of course he wants to get well. What kind of... Strange question is that. Isn't it interesting you read that? You're like, why, why would he ask that? We don't, we don't ultimately know. 
Some would say, well, Jesus is pointing out maybe a deeper psychological reality that the man has to want to be healed, right? Does he really want to be healed? And that, you know, maybe that's part of that, but I think that could maybe read a little bit too much modern psychology into the text psychologically. That may be true, uh, but I'm not really sure that's what Jesus is getting at here. In the narrative, it seems like a pretty simple, straightforward question. It's, a, it's an invitation from Jesus, Jesus is indicating to this man that he can help him. It's an offer. And so we, when we read that, there's this sense of anticipation, right? Because we've seen Jesus heal people miraculously before. We've seen his power on display in different ways. And so as we read that, we're like, what's, what's Jesus going to do? How this, how's this going to work out? We just saw him heal at the end of chapter 4. Like, buckle up, here we go again. And we see the man's response. Look at it. Sir... The invalid replied, I, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Okay, so notice, notice in his response, he's kind of bought in, right? He's bought into this uh, popular opinion, this popular level view that has this mix of like a Jewish background with kind of pagan or Greek thought. This pool is going to kind of get stirred up. And then if I'm the first one down into the water, that's how I'm going to get healed. The pool is going to heal me. It's kind of this, this synch, uh, syncretism, right? this combination of, of views. In the same way that today we maybe would mix a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Bible, and some of us want to kind of mix into that, you know, a little bit of popular psychology or a little bit of Eastern spirituality, or a little bit of Oprah, you know, throw a little Oprah in there, or, uh, you know, we'll hang on to Jesus, kind of, or maybe you'll have friends, or people you know, or I don't know, maybe you're in this place where you kind of are wondering about maybe this, this language of evolving spiritually, and going on this journey kind of beyond Christianity, beyond the Bible, to new sorts of truths, and you kind of want to keep Jesus mixed in there, but it's kind of this kind of vague spirituality, maybe it's, you know, talk of karma, and good things coming your way, maybe we talk about the universe, and stirring up the universe, you know, there's all sorts of kind of strange, uh, combination spiritual views possible out there. And that's what this man represents, this kind of pseudo-religious, superstitious approach. Yes, he's there in Jerusalem. Yes, he's there in the capital, but he's going to these healing pools and thinking kind of the stirred up water is going to kind of magically help him and make him well. And let's remember, again, the man's need is real. His need is real. He needs healing. He needs help. Just like we come in today and we have needs. We need healing. We need help. We come in this morning with great burdens and, and wounds, right? Let's just be honest. Wounds from our past. Wounds from things people have said to us. Maybe abuse we've experienced. Maybe uh, sharp words or criticism or manipulation directed towards us. Maybe we face loneliness. Maybe we face depression. Maybe we face anxiety, you name it, we have wounds, we have needs, also we, illness, physical healing as well. We have all these different needs that are real, that are not to be made light of. But the question becomes, where are we going to get help? Right? Where do we run for wellness? Who or what's going to make us whole? I had a conversation with a, a, a neighbor of mine this week. Uh, we were hanging out at a park with our 
daughters. They were running and playing, and we had a great conversation. And somehow it came up. We were basically lamenting together about uh, the state of our world. Right? We were talking about the news cycle. You look around, you read the news, you hear the stories and the headlines about just how, how broken our world is. You see uh, people taking advantage of other people. You see violence. You see death. You see just so many heavy and dark things. You see just the selfishness of the human heart on display in so many ways. And this guy, he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. He's uh, you know, kind of a, a secular, uh, humanist, atheist, not a religious guy. And yet, as we're talking, I'm like, do you realize you're like explaining things in the same way that the Bible would kind of explain the human condition? Like, as a pastor, I completely agree with you. We, we do have selfish Uh, broken hearts. Our world is broken. The biblical word for that is sin. And so I very much agree with you, neighbor, friend of mine. And so we got to the place where we said, well, okay, what what do we do about that? Like, what's what's the solution? And so I asked him, like, what's the solution? You know, you see the selfishness of the human heart. You see the brokenness in our world. Like, is is there hope for things to change? Is there hope for the world at large to be uh, made new and healed? Is there hope for individual humans to be uh, healed and changed? And he, he didn't really know. He didn't, didn't really have an answer. It's like, I'm not, I'm not really sure. He kind of saw himself as a pessimist. And so it was kind of like, oh, probably not. Things are just going to continue to be broken and painful and so on. But so I ask you, like this man in the text, what's, what's your pool? Think about it. He was looking at the pool. His faith was in the pool to heal him. He, and he said even to Jesus, you know, basically, I need to get into that water to be made well. I'm not going to be made well. I'm not going to be made whole until someone helps me get in that water. And so what's your pool? You know, that thing that you look at, that thing that you say, you know, if I could just somehow have blank, my problems are going to be solved. If I could just have that job, if I could just reach that, uh, that promotion, if I could just have that status, if I could just have that, that role, that influence, that respect that I'm craving, if I could just have that financial stability, right? Just make X amount of money, then our family's going to be set. Or maybe for you, it's a relationship. If I could just have that relationship if I could just uh, be married, I'm not married, I want to be married, or, or I'm married but we don't have kids, I want kids, or uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I want grandkids or whatever. If I could just have that relationship, that person in my life, that would make me whole, that would heal my heart. Or maybe it's I just need to find the right guru, read the right self-help books, or maybe it's I need to have a certain you know, physical wellness, I just need to, to work out, have the right physique have the right uh, healthy body, or maybe it's I need to travel more, I need to have more fun, thrilling experiences, more of a nightlife, more uh, stories to share, or maybe I'm a workaholic and I just need like, to, to get all those projects at work lined up and dialed in and, and done, and then I'll be able to rest, right? If I could just have that thing. So what is your pool? If I could just get down in the water, then I'll be made well. Right? Notice those things aren't necessarily bad things in themselves. Those could be good things, all the things I just mentioned in different ways. Right? But, but they become a problem when, when good things what become ultimate things. We take a good thing, we say, this is now an, an idol, a thing I have to have. And so, but notice with me in the text, just the irony of the text. Notice this man looks at Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? 
this invitation. And, and the man sees Jesus not as his healer, but as the means to get what he thinks will heal him. All right? You see that? Verse 7, he basically said, Jesus, if I could just get helped into the pool, then I'd be healed. Kind of this implication, Jesus, I guess, yeah, if you want to help me, cool, just help me get down into the water. He sees Jesus not as his healer, but as the means to get what he thinks will heal him. His faith is in the pool, not in Jesus. Just how sometimes we seek God not for who he is, but for what he can give us. Right? And we pray, Lord, would you bring this into my life? Or would you uh, give me this? Would you grant my request in this way? And we see Jesus not as our healer, but as the means to get what we think will heal us. Jesus responds, verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so, amazingly, miraculously, this is incredible, right? Jesus, with a word, heals this man. Jesus, in in a few breaths, wipes away 38 years of disability, of paralysis. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once, he was healed. He was made well. What do we make of this? A couple things. First, first is really simply, we see the power of Jesus. We see the authority of Jesus. If we had a big old scoreboard there at the pool, it would say, you know, ancient healing pool, zero, Jesus, one. Okay, Jesus just shows his power over and above this this place of confusion, this place of religious superstition. Jesus shows himself to stand alone. He's the authoritative, compassionate healer. To the man, he says, you know what, yeah, I'm going to help you. But I'm not going to help you in the way that you think. It's not that I need to get you into the pool. You don't need the pool. You need me. And in a word, he changes him radically. And we see just this repetition in the passage, this word for healing, this word for to, to be made well. We see it in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 11, in verse 14, in verse 15. So kind of over and over again throughout the passage, the theme is that Jesus is the one who heals us. Jesus is the one who makes us well. Physically, he can do it, although we know that's not guaranteed in this life. We face physical ailments still. But we think of this uh, spiritually. We think about the way that uh, Jesus can heal our hearts, encompassing our whole lives. And this is where we remember, friends, the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that we celebrate every Sunday. As 1 John 4 10 puts it, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So here's the good news. Here's the heart of our message. Not that we loved God, not that we figured it out, not that we were chasing after him, but he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. 
And so we look to the cross. We see the good news of the gospel. We see the, the love of God for his people. We see the, the work of Jesus, his sacrificial love to forgive us of our sins, bring us into the family of God. He gives us his spirit. He gives us new hearts. And that's what I was able to share with my friend the other day at the park. Because after he kind of talked about, I don't really know what the answer is to this, you know, dark and, and broken and selfish world we have. He kind of asked me, well, what do you think, pastor man? You're, you seem like a guy who maybe should have some answers or something. And so he's <laughs> like, what about, what about you? We both agreed on the problem. We had different answers to the solution. And so I was able to share the gospel with him and tell him, you know what, if the problem, think about it, if the problem in the world is that we all have selfish, garbage hearts, then the solution is what if we get to have new hearts? What if God could transform our hearts so that we could be new kinds of people, not people that pursue self and harm others, but people that love God, people that love others, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5 tells us whoever is in Christ is what a new creation we're forgiven of our sins through the work of Christ on the cross and his atoning sacrifice. We're justified by faith and then God gives us this new heart. He changes us from within. He transforms us so that we can then go and, and love him and love others and live for his glory and the good of our world. And notice that Jesus does this act of healing in the text. It's personal, right? He approaches this man. He speaks to this man directly. The man likely was looking for some kind of encounter that was impersonal, that was indirect, right? Like, get me down in the water. There's going to be kind of this magic, you know, spiritual dust thing going on. The water is going to get stirred up and kind of maybe the, maybe the power of God is going to be mixed up in that and is going to, going to heal me. It's this ritual. It's, uh, you know, maybe something about the universe is going to kind of, kind of vaguely, magically heal me, give me what we need, what I need. But Jesus says, no, it's, it's not impersonal healing. You need, you need personal healing. You need the personal love and presence of God. And Jesus shows up and he shows this man. He says, I see you. I know you, I love you, I know your name, I know your story, and I am what you need. So friends, Jesus sees you. And it's his personal presence in your life that we all most desperately need. And so we see with this man, uh, Jesus gives him what he thought the pool would give him, right? He, was think, he thought he needed the pool, but what he really needed was Jesus. And so with us, Jesus gives us what we think our pools are going to give us. Whatever your pool is, whatever you think you need to make you whole, to heal your heart, to, to satisfy you, Jesus is going to show you that what you ultimately need is him. And then you can enjoy all those other things in, in their proper place. But the only way that those idols, those pools, those things that we chase after, the only way they're going to lose their grip on us, the only way we're going to uh, not become enslaved to them is if they are replaced by something bigger and better. And that's what worship is all about, right? Where we, we sing and praise and celebrate that Jesus is bigger and better than all our idols, than anything else that we could chase after. He's the one who truly satisfies us. He's the one who can truly heal us. And everything that I need, my desire for love, my desire for belonging, I have in Christ. 
the healing that I long for I have in Christ, the, the purpose and meaning I desire in my life I have it in Christ, the, the release of fear, uh, the release from fear that I so desperately long for I can have it in Christ. So Jesus is the one who heals us. Now, as amazing as this all is, like think about this scene, 38 years, man, paralyzed, boom, Jesus, word, healed, get up, he gets up, walks, amazing, amazing. Not everybody, though, is happy with this. Right? Look at the text. Verse 10, And so the Jewish leaders, they see this guy walking, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, Who's this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Okay, are you picturing the scene with me? Amazing healing! And then these, these grumpy, you know, killjoy religious leaders come over and say, yeah, okay, sure, the healing was cool and all, but you're carrying your mat around, and it's the Sabbath, and so you're not supposed to be doing that. They didn't say, wow, what an amazing miracle! Praise God, look at this man healed 38 years, decades of disability, and now he's healed, he's walking. Let's celebrate, let's throw a party, let's get on our knees and praise God, let's find the one who did this and celebrate. No, instead they say, hey, you're not supposed to carry that mat around, you know. Think about it, this is crazy. And not only that, but hey, who, who was this person who told you to do it? We, we want to go find him and have a stern talking with him because this is not okay. I mean, it would be, it would be comical. It'd be, it does make us chuckle, but it's sad. It's so sad, right? Think about it. Why in the world would anyone have this reaction? Okay, think about it. It talks about it's the Sabbath. And if we know, uh, if we're familiar with the scriptures, we know that the Jews were very serious about keeping the Sabbath. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. Simply means to, to stop, to rest. And the Sabbath was this uh, rhythm built in to their lives where they would rest one day out of seven, right? If you go back to the creation pattern in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created and then on the seventh day he rested. And so on the Sabbath, the people of God were to rest and to worship. No work was to be done. It's actually a really beautiful thing. Sabbath is a, a beautiful thing, a beautiful practice. Actually, more of us today probably should embrace this rhythm of having a day set aside each week, right? To rest and to worship. So it's a good thing. But the Jewish leaders in the day of Jesus took things too far. See, Scripture says not to work on the Sabbath, but they said, you know what, that's not really specific enough. You know, the whole not working thing. We need to make that a little more clear. So we're going to add some regulations. We're going to add some, some tradition uh, around that to really make sure people don't work. And so they wrote about 39 different laws that would explain what counts as work. Okay, so the, the Sabbath requirement says, hey, don't work you know, rest on the seventh day. And they said, well, again, that's not specific enough. Let's like put the boundaries out here and make sure no one comes even close to breaking the Sabbath. So here's all these things that are going to count as work. Things like, you know, cleaning or gardening or, or carrying things. Carrying things from one location to another. They said, well, that counts as work. And so they see this man miraculously healed. 
verse 10, carrying his mat as he walks away. And they said, you're not supposed to do that. Not because he was violating Scripture. Not because he was violating the Torah, but because he was violating their tradition that they added to Scripture. And even just think about the heart of Sabbath. Was this man working? Was this man conducting business? No, he was miraculously healed, walking away, carrying his mat home. And so you see the issue. They are more concerned about their, their rigid tradition, their ritual, than they are about this man's well-being. Not that he was breaking Scripture, but breaking their interpretation, their understanding, their application of the law. Something was happening outside the bounds of what they expected. And so they got grumpy about it. And we do the same thing today. When we take uh, our own interpretation of Scripture or uh, secondary or you know, third-tier doctrinal issues, not core issues, but say, hey, that church down the street, they're going to do things a little bit different than we do. You know, we're in the same camp, we're on the same team, but they're going to view uh, this or issue, or they're going to approach this a little bit differently. When, when we see people differing on secondary issues, and we get worked up like it's a first-order issue, that's a problem. Now, we're going to unpack uh, over the next few weeks uh, what is going on here on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus' authority to, to work and act and heal. Jesus is going to tell us a lot about his relationship with God the Father, his, his unique authority that comes from his identity and relationship with God the Father. So we're going to, in the next couple weeks, unpack that. Uh, so we don't have time to go into all of that today, but that's kind of where we're going. Now, last thing I want you to see here, I know we're running late, is verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. You remember, Jesus, or the man didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know his name. And Jesus finds him later in the temple, seeks him out, and he warns him. You notice he warns him. What does he say? He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Stop sinning. Sin is, is this uh, biblical concept, this biblical word for the uh, disposition of the heart that is bent away from God. Right? It's this internal disposition that say we are going to set ourselves up as our own king, as our own authority. We're going to do what we want. It's a motivation of the heart and it expresses itself right in, in breaking God's law and breaking God's commands and going against the word of God and, and deliberately disobeying because of this verse, we see that the serious, and not just because of this verse, but in this verse, we see the consequences of sin, right? Jesus says to him, hey, you've been healed of your disability. You've been healed after 38 years. And that was pretty bad, right, to live in that place for 38 years? Yeah. Realize, though, that if you keep on sinning, something worse is going to come upon you. What could be worse? Think about it. What could be worse? In a lifetime, 38 years, that's longer than some people lived back then. What could be worse? Just a few verses later, verse 29, Jesus speaks about judgment. He speaks about condemnation for our sin before a holy and righteous God. And so here we see Jesus warn about hell. He warns us of judgment. 
He warns us that, that God is holy, that sin separates us from God, that sin leads to death and condemnation. And if you say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus, I would argue, look at the Gospels. You'll see Jesus talk about hell, judgment, quite often. He warns of it, not because he's angry and doesn't like us, but because he loves us and wants us to be aware of the weight of sin and what it leads to. Jesus says, stop sinning. Don't live a life of sin. Move away from your sin. Walk in holiness. And now, friends, the good news is that in Christ, right, there's forgiveness of sin. We're not perfect. We need a Redeemer. And so, in Christ, we're washed, we're renewed. Our our sin is covered. We're justified. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But as believers, then, it's our desire to walk uh, out of sin, to increasingly put to death our sin and live in a way that would please and honor and glorify God. And so this text then uh, calls us to consider our sin. And if Jesus stands before us and says, stop sinning, walk away from that sin, I'd ask you, what does that look like in your life? Is there something he's pointing out that you need to turn from, repent of, confess, and walk away from, and pursue righteousness? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we, as we move through it fairly quickly this morning, we admit there's just so much here, and Lord, but we see the heart of it, Jesus, that, that you are the healer. You are the one uh, who comes to us and who offers to, to make us whole. Only you can do this, Lord, only you. And so we come to you with, this hum- with humble hearts, and Lord, we come to you desiring to repent of our sin. We know, Lord, that there are ways that we have moved and thought and acted that, uh, that has, has displeased you. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would forgive us. We repent now. We pray that you would, would once again uh, restore a right spirit within us, cleanse us, and help us walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.